Welcome to today's placemaking conversation, which is part of Ashurst's Reimagining Real Estate campaign. Those operating in the development world often talk about placemaking, but I would like to unravel some of the mystery that surrounds placemaking. What do we mean by placemaking in practice? How do we know if we've achieved it? And why is it important? I'm Richard Vernon, a partner in the real estate team at Ashurst, and I have great pleasure in being joined today, firstly, by Selena Mason, who is Director of Master Planning at Lendlease Morning. Good morning, Richard. Good to be here. And secondly, great pleasure in being joined by Beck Seeley, who is Managing Director for Development in Europe. Morning, Beck. Morning, Richard. Right, I'm gonna start uh, testing you both by the magic words, placemaking. I'm interested to dig deeper into what we actually mean by placemaking on the ground and how we measure it and how do we understand if we've achieved it. And I know that placemaking is in the DNA of Lendlease and has always been at the heart of your strategy. Could I start by asking you each to pick a scheme where you have made a place, you know, and what criteria do you use to measure both the benefit to Lendlease and also the benefit to others having successfully made that place? And perhaps, Selena, I could ask you to pick that scheme first. Okay, well, I'm going to start with one that's not quite finished. Uh, it's a work in progress, which is Elephant Park in London, just in Southwark, uh, next to Elephant and Castle. I think the thing about place is it's, it's, it's something that starts, starts and ends with people. It's not bricks and mortar as such. It's the kind of, that's the sort of chassis for the place. Uh, it's the people and the way that the, they live and work and play in a place that really makes the difference. And that's where placemaking comes in. And I think that's probably the thing that makes it the most challenging for us and for anyone building large schemes anywhere. It, uh, it means you have to be fixed on the people that are gonna be using it, both those who are there at the moment, the community that you arrive in, but also the people that are gonna be living there in the future. And it's very difficult in the midst of the kind of energy and chaos of getting a place built it's really easy to get fixed on the buildings, on the architecture, but actually we at Lendlease really try to focus most of our energies on the place itself in terms of the public realm, the buildings that are going, the, the activation at ground level and how people are gonna occupy and inhabit a place to make it work really well. Um, so that's, that's, that's the start of it. I'm sure we'll get into more detail of, uh, of how you deliver it as we go in the conversation. Fantastic, Beck, handing over to you, pick a scheme. Okay, I'm going to go a bit different. I'm going to go regional and I'm going to go Hungate in York. Uh, reason I think I would choose that is Selena's smiling now because she knows that I love Hungate. <laughs> it's really difficult to do something new in a very old and historic environment, which obviously York is. Hungate is within the city walls in York, so it's right next to all of the historic features. And I think Hungate manages to be a really modern place to live but actually feel like it's integrated with the historic city i think as well what i really like about hungate is you can wander off the streets of york into hungate and you don't feel like you're in a different environment it feels a very natural flow and also you don't feel like you have to live there to be there so it's inclusive i think some of the challenges as well in modern places are around the people who do live and work there and therefore feel they own it does that kind of 
create an issue in terms of visitors and people passing through and how you blend all that together. And I th think Hungate does achieve that. Yes, we're not finished on that, we're still going. But I think there's enough there to see that that place is going to work and it's going to feel like somewhere that everyone would want to be. Fantastic. Selena, picking up on something you mentioned about not being fixed on the architecture and, and sort of about the people, a widely held view is that placemaking costs more to deliver. So going back to the money, you know, does it actually cost more in your view? Does it re result in value? You know, is it just a development cost on the balance sheet, on the appraisal? Or is that cost balanced by additional value on the other side of the equation? It, it really shouldn't cost more. It, this is really about where you put your money and where you choose to invest. And uh, in the end, in terms of value, if, if people like a place, then its value is going to go up. You know, in the end, you need, you need to make an attractive, good place to continue to build value over time. And that's what we're really after. I think for, for cost, it's always a really interesting question. This is something I've often been asked over the years. But for me, this is around investing in the places that matter to people and that will be those value drivers in the long term. And it's largely around public realm. You do have to build high quality buildings that are going to be enduring and lasting, obviously. But at the same time, if you if you focus your investment in areas that will be those places, as Beck said, that are, are those places that people are going to be walking through and enjoying, whether they're living there or working there or indeed just visiting, that's where that's where the value is really driven through into a place. And so, again, if we go back to Elephant Park, uh, I think the the quality of the park in the middle, the way that we really focus the investment in there and the way that we've built the buildings around it so that they they're orientated towards it and make that the real centerpiece. That's the thing that is really driving a lot of the value there, definitely. So Beck, take, taking your York example, is that is that how it applied? Is that how the sort of cost value analysis worked for you? And has that ended up in that place? Yeah, there's probably a couple of aspects to that. So placemaking can cost if you're focused on a particular individual piece of it. And I think sometimes in design and sort of enthusiasm, there can be a bit of a getting over carried away with it. I think you've got to look at the whole thing. Um, and Selena and I often have conversations around things like, you know, quality of materials, etc. You do need some things that are features, but you also need everything to be to a reasonable standard in totality of the place and how that's done. So I think looking at the whole investment and how you're working that is really key. Otherwise, you know, there are some places where I wouldn't want to name them, but certainly not ours, I'd hope that. You know, people got a bit carried away in one area and then five years later run out of money and that just doesn't work. Um, it's kind of fairly obvious. So I think it's thinking through and planning your investment, particularly on a long scheme, over the totality of it. And York, I think, has done that. We've kind of evolved it phase by phase. We didn't kind of start in one form and then kind of switch and all the rest of it as we went through. And then the other thing that I'd probably just say around that, which I think York probably does show, is that because it's a scheme that's been going quite a long time, it's about how you maintain that place. We all know the challenges around historically, for example, sort of public sector funding of public realm and city centres, town centres. So it's no use putting in a great place that there is then no commercial durable model to fund and maintain. You may as well not have done it. So having that model in place and working through what you can afford to maintain at the start is absolutely key, I think, to, to the enduring outcome. 
So, so in terms of design, you know, a slightly un, unfair question, what, what more are you getting out of the place? For me, so, I mean, really easy example, right? So you, you will need drainage in a place. Very unglamorous. Um, probably spent far too long in pipes myself looking at stuff in my career, but you do need it. And you can think about how you design your drainage to also be a great place in terms of use of materials and how that public realm and, and the spaces between buildings works with things like gravel or the sustainable drainage things. And that's more than just a nice pretty picture and a nice garden is actually saving you money in terms of what heavy infrastructure you might alternatively have to put in to remove excess water from the site. So it's a combination of yes, design and the focus on that, but also the integration of engineering and infrastructure and all those tasks to bring it together, which then ultimately I think can help get a commercial proposition that can work. That's a, that's, that's a really good example. And the other thing that I was going to talk about was um, the fact that actually it's, it's, it's something that we're learning about all of the time as well. It's not just something we kind of have a methodology for and can deliver. Um, so for instance, at Elephant Park, the tree, the original master plan that was drafted was going to remove all of the trees there. And listening to the people in the early stages when they said, they threw up their hands in horror, you can't possibly do this. We've got these glorious, glorious London plane trees over a hundred years old. And, um, and we listened to them, revi revisited the master plan, redrafted it so that we could retain the vast majority of those trees. And that's, that we've learned, you know, it's it, trees just like, uh, historic buildings are kind of part of the fabric of a place and you if you if you pay attention to what people are telling you about somewhere and you pay attention to the place itself you really do start to learn what's of value there already why take away those valuable components when you can keep them and I you know I think if you do go to visit Elephant Park now the fact that we've got mature trees throughout the scheme really lifts it makes it something quite incredible and unusual relative to some of our competing schemes in neighboring areas uh, and that's just you know again the big lesson lesson there is just just listen you know pay attention to what people are telling you about what they value locally and if you start there you're always going to start in a good place there trees that's an interesting link to actually my next thought which was around the wider question of net zero but also linking into health and well-being, and obviously ESG being right at the top of everyone's agenda. Placemaking has had to evolve, or will have to evolve, to meet those agendas. You know, from your perspective, how has how has that happened so far, and where next? You know, how is how is placemaking going to evolve to meet those agendas? I think from from kind of design master planning perspective certainly the health and well-being is now becoming a really important part of how we think about a place you know we're really recognizing and the pandemic has been big big wake-up call for people you know I think it's been really obvious the way in which where you've been living and the kind of quality of place what access to amenity you've had uh, has had a major impact upon your well-being during that period. Uh, you know, we've he we heard a lot about people who were living in um, densely packed housing, having to use public transport to get into jobs, key workers who were much more likely to suffer the consequences of getting COVID in the early days than, than people who were more able to work at home, more, more easy access to open space and um, 
you know, the opportunities to improve your health and well-being through that. Uh, it was so obvious how how the built environment was having was the consequence of the way that it was built was having a major impact on people's quality of life. And that, I think, is something that is really going to become part of an important part of how we build and uh, design places in the future. Recognizing that an equitable place, you do have to think really carefully about how you can create places that everyone can live in. They all have access to amenity. Uh, everyone has the opportunity to live a healthy life. And a lot of that is about the public realm and access to open space, definitely, as well as having a good quality home. Beck, from your perspective, I know on, on that sort of topic, um, we, we've obviously worked together on the Thamesmead uh, proposal or project. You know, how have you seen that or how do you think the green agenda is going to apply, say, on a project like Thamesmead? So Thamesmead, I think, has the opportunity because it's very, very long term multiple generations will probably grow up in Thamesmead while we're developing out Thamesmead waterfront to really kind of sort of in a way be petri dish of experimentation as it evolves through with the ideas that hopefully some of those will really make a difference not just in Thamesmead but but internationally and on other big schemes so because I think you know if anyone thinks they've got all the answers to what we need to do, then I kind of feel like they're kidding us. Then I think you have to have the confidence to experiment and to fail. And I think Thamesmead has the opportunity that there is so much potential that you can have a go and some things will work really well. And some things kind of technologies won't be quite what we thought they were, etc. But But you can still move on and you can recover that position and be very successful in the long term I think that's much harder to do on sort of small more short-term schemes where you're not going to be there very long and you really need to know it's going to work um, so Thamesmead I think has that opportunity to take a leadership role in how you work through what what a new place can look and feel like in a modern world that is sustainable um, and I think probably you look at it as well I mean it's sort of helpful in its geographic position in that it's very kind of focused on green and how you can use those green spaces to support quite an intensive community but they can feel very I guess the simple word is wild given that it's still on the edge of London and also I think the fact that Thamesmead is on the river I'm not sure we've yet seen the full extent of how particularly topical at the moment energy will evolve over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And so the fact that you have, you know, the Thames sat next to it, the fact that you have a large amount of open space, I feel that that offers a lot of opportunity for those ideas to really come to bear in the future on that scheme. It's, a, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? A lot of this conversation is, is it comes back to communities, use the word communities, and, and we've talked about the importance of it of people not just bricks and mortar and that that obviously brings into bear the concept of socio-economic benefits which again is is one of those expressions that's talked about a lot and I know embedded in the the Lend-Lease principles is is a quote from your founder which was around the emphasis placed on the environmental and social impact rather than just straight e economics which I think is a brilliant quote what examples have you seen in practice that shows that socioeconomic benefit really can be delivered in the schemes that you've done? 
I think if you don't have those examples, Richard, then I'm not sure the scheme is successful and is and is a really high quality place. So just from a general perspective, I'm not sure how you deliver that great place outcome if you don't have social economic benefits that are you know, really valuable and mean something. I think probably an example I would suggest around our own learning over this is that for many years, Lenise has really focused on how we open up construction jobs to the local community on all of our schemes. I think the challenge with long-term schemes is you can, for significant periods of people's lives, all they look is at, at, at what you're doing and just think your building's like, what, what am I getting out of this? And therefore, being able to offer those benefits back to a community early is really critical in feeling like the equation is more balanced. I think what we've learned there is very much the focus on those social economic benefits, not just being associated with a scheme and the presence of a scheme, because by definition, then there's a view that they turn off as soon as the building's finished. And therefore, what we've learned to do with our approach is very much put a lot of our effort into not just employing people to help us construct and do things on those schemes, but over-train them and over-provide career coaching and additional help around how you make that job a career. So that when, you know, there is no longer a job with us because we're finished, then you actually are really well equipped to move on into that that career and that's a really you know that's kind of a long-lasting lifetime benefit for a family of somebody with a career not just a job um, and that's that's a challenging thing but you know working with our supply chain to make sure that people have opportunities after we've finished because obviously the supply chain is working for other people that to me feels like if we can get ourselves there, then that's a real long-term benefit for the community that started with something on the scheme that is then much bigger. Selena, coming back to Elephant Park, is you know how have you seen you know in a scheme that's in the making still yeah. after ten years, but how have you seen that socio-economic benefit show itself? Yeah, I mean, as uh, as Beck was saying, this is we've been focusing a lot not just on short-term jobs but also medium and long term as well so there we've as well as helping in terms of construction jobs we've also been looking at local businesses as well so we set up a a meanwhile space called artworks where we had local businesses housed in there uh, as a hub with business support many of those businesses that were in that meanwhile use have now moved into providing services along our streets in Elephant Park, so particularly food and beverage. So um, we've got some great examples of homegrown small businesses that are now building, growing, uh, and taking on more shops in the locality as well as the ones on Sayre Street in Elephant Park. And I think that's where where it's it's really important to focus on, as well as focusing on short, medium, long term in terms of bricks and mortar. If you're focusing on um, on business development and economic development over that period as well, you can make uh, thoughtful decisions again very focused on the actual community there and what's there and how you can build more economic vitality into a place using the scheme as the kind of leverage for that and the opportunity for that uh, and it's not it's it's something that we have to kind of think about on every scheme in a slightly different way and the challenges that we're facing as we move towards 
are trying to achieve zero carbon in our development, for instance, you know, a bit reflecting on what Beck was saying about construction jobs. You know, one of the big challenges about zero carbon is it kind of feels fairly obvious. The best thing to do is probably to mass produce, probably to build your buildings in factories off site somewhere and ship them in, ship the components in and assemble them on site, which obviously will mean fewer jobs on site. So I think thinking carefully about how we tackle those kind of mass production issues and you know how can we still maintain that that opportunity to to generate great jobs locally during construction whilst we're also bringing in mass production so probably it isn't about building great big chunks of buildings and putting them on a lorry and bringing them in probably it's actually about buying mass producing smaller pieces and assembling them on site, bringing them to site and assembling them on site um, and actually starting to create quite high quality jobs on site as we assemble that. And thinking too about, um, you know, who does those jobs? You know, traditionally, obviously in construction, it's always been, you know, the big, the big burly men who you've needed on site to do, the, to do the jobs. But actually increasingly, if we're looking at mass production, then you get a wider opportunities for much broader section of society, particularly women, for instance, who you don't see anywhere near enough of on building sites. So I think, all of these things, you know, it's a constant learning exercise. It's a constant question and challenge to ourselves. How are we doing the right thing? Is this the best way to do this in this place, given where we find ourselves and, um, and the community we're in and some of the future challenges? But you've both talked about the investment for the long term, which is fantastic. And, and, and I understand how you, on the one hand, have to look at the cost of delivering the place today, you know, the development costs we've already talked about. But also the challenges, Beck, you mentioned the challenges of then how is that place looked after? We can build wonderful public realm, but how is it then funded? Who's going to look after that place going forward? What, what's the role of social impact funds and investment into that in relation to looking after those places going forward? I would say at the moment, huge opportunity, nowhere near developed enough as to how how the role of those sorts of funds may work so from a sort of land lease perspective I think the custodianship of the place in the future is critical as we talked about having a position where you can have an investment model but is as driven by those social economic outcomes and valuing those as much as the kind of stable financial return is, you know, is, is this kind of a perfection world? You think, well, that might be on the way to kind of getting to something that feels pretty good. I think I challenge historically in the market on some of the kind of more established areas of these sorts of funds is you know, building property and development is not low risk. And how do you get the risk appetite of those sorts of investors to match off with the actual inherent risk in building and construction, constructing large places and selling and renting large amounts of real estate. But I think we're exploring quite a lot of how, particularly on things like managing an estate, there could be a really significant role for those sorts of funds. I think we've seen community land trusts for a while, that an evolution of that can be very much a kind of social economic impact assessment fund type model 
So there's work going on on how that may evolve into the future, I think, in the industry, but definitely my niece is looking at that, particularly as you, you know, I think we all aspire to places that are inclusive and mixed with high degrees of affordable housing as well, but that necessarily means that we need to think even harder about how the maintenance and management costs of those places are going forwards. So it drives you to think creatively around it. I think there's some also some really interesting positions though coming through from what you might say as more mainstream investors. So no mainstream investor, I think, doesn't care about social impact now. So much as though three or four years ago, you may have thought that these sorts of models, et cetera, probably you'd have to go to bespoke type investor. I think the mainstream investor market is moving towards it. So sort of coalescing over recent years. I see a big opportunity, Richard. I think there will be some things that go right in that and there'll be some things that aren't quite as good as they should have been and we need to learn and move forwards. But I think the focus on that as an alignment model for how you manage successfully commercially places in the long term but also do not lose focus on that social outcome is critical what i'd like to do then is ask you both for your predictions for both the main changes we're going to see in placemaking looking forward but also the challenges which are going to be faced in placemaking selena if i could perhaps ask you first right well predictions you know how <laughs> How clear are we about how they're going to be? But anyway, I can certainly I can certainly tell you what my nervousness is about going forward, or, what, or where I think things might be. We've talked about health and well-being. Certainly, that's something that is going to be an increasing part of how we build places and think about them and design them. There's no doubt about that. The other thing that I think we don't talk enough about, um, and that is something that is having a major impact on the way that we use cities and we think about places is the digital economy. And not in the sense that, you know, new jobs in the digital world need to be, we need to build places for those things like that. But actually, most people will recognize, as I start to say, you, you can pick up your phone and you can order anything quickly, you know, whether it's food or whether it's from um, Amazon or whatever. And that's having a huge impact on the way that our public realm is being used. So if, if you just go down your high street and you walk past any F&B out there, you'll see the guys waiting out there with their with their helmets on, waiting for deliveries, taking up quite a lot of room and creating a very different street scene than we would have been used to a few years ago. Uh, or equally, you might have a neighbour who rents out their house to Airbnb. So the fact that we're now deploying our urban resources through the digital world is having a huge effect on the way that we use and experience urban places. Basically, those digital platforms are pushing their, their negative externalities onto the public realm largely, or onto, onto you as a person living in a place and your neighbors doing something with Airbnb or whatever. And I think that that's something that we're not really tuning into very carefully around how, how we design places. And certainly from a Lenny's perspective, we're, we're aware of the impact. We're, we're now often worried as we design our streets, where are, the, where are the delivery guys going to be? How is this place, how is this restaurant going to be able to serve people on the street? 
uh, have a lovely experience sitting outside meeting whilst at the same time obviously also providing delivery services which they need to do because that's that's the business model now so all these questions about how you can accommodate all this stuff and of course it's it's a lot of it is unknown you know five ten years ago we had no idea this was going to have such a big impact and if there's one thing I know about the way we're using our phones that's going to ca carry on changing it's the change is probably going to be exponential and being alert to that and being able to given as Beck was saying we're delivering these places over tens of years you know how can we make sure that we're, we're agile in that context as um, as our cities change in response to this that's that's my big worry about the future I mean it's it's a a sort of prediction and a sort of anxiety there for you. <laughs> Beck, how about you? Okay, I'm going to go with a positive outcome from the pandemic, which I think is is the focus on localism. So not not totally everywhere, but I think in many places you're seeing, you know, people discovered their communities for the first time, people learned each other's names in their streets. There was a lot of good things that came out of a pretty awful period. And I think generally people don't want to lose that. There's also some really interesting things that if you look big picture going on, may drive certain things in terms of helping with the sustainability perspective, but also they really drive focus on localism. So for example, the fact that petrol costs so much now well, people don't want to drive and can't drive because it's so expensive. What that focuses on is why is your workplace so far from your home? Why is it not possible that your workplace could be a cycle ride or a walking distance? Because then you also would be doing a much more sustainable outcome for the environment, but it would not it would be costing less and you wouldn't be using energy. I think the for me, looking at big picture, what do you mean by your local community and how that evolves? I think there's going to be a huge amount of real focus on it. But also some of the macro trends, if it interacts in the right way, might really help us. So you know, the cost of energy is crippling at the moment, but it will have behavioural change because it has to, because it is so high. And that, that I think, offers us opportunity in a positive sense. I mean, it's certainly not pleasant right now for the consequences it's having but we have to continue to drive change. And we've proved that you can come through a pandemic and drive positive outcomes. That does show that the world can adapt. Fantastic. Well, th thank you both. And my takeaway from today is really the centered focus of people and communities. You know, when, when I asked the question right at the top of this, you know, what do we actually mean by placemaking? Um, yes, we can talk about vertical build and we can talk about bricks and mortar, but actually, that success is around the people, that the measure of success is around the community and people and Beck, you're just picking up then in terms of the potential change in the way in which we see our communities and staying and working within our communities, you know, as a positive outcome potentially of the pandemic. I, again, it centers back to people and communities, which is obviously fantastic. So thank you very much for joining us today. Selena, thank you. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was lovely to be here. Beck, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, a great conversation and we'll no doubt continue the chat. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and don't want to miss the rest of our conversations on reimagining real estate, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, 
feel free to leave us a rating or review. If you'd like to find out more about Ashurst, please visit ashurst.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening and goodbye for now.